Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Thomas Heaton. Thanks so much. Uh, and uh, when Jennifer first contacted me, she asked me to talk about our new early warning system in California, our new alerting system, which is a pretty interesting talk. But to be honest, I told her I thought this talk that I'm giving tonight is a more important talk for us as Californians. And um, I'm going to say some things tonight that might disturb you. <laughs> and, and if you don't like it, perhaps you could move back to Chicago. <laughs> but I wouldn't suggest it today. So, so I'll be talking about the, the physics of uh, tall buildings and what makes them collapse. And this is uh, some work that I've been working on for basically 25 years with a number of colleagues at Caltech and especially with my graduate students. I just don't have time to really give the, all the attribution to this. Um, as uh, was mentioned, my background was physics into geophysics and then my career took this very strange turn 25 years ago when I became a professor of civil engineering and I had to learn engineering. And <laughs> so let's uh, get started here. This is a, a, a from the New York Times. This was an article that came out in the New York Times last spring <clears throat> by a guy, uh, Thomas Fuller, who did a very careful analysis of uh, talking to people about the safety of tall buildings in San Francisco. He noticed that they were they're just building forest of new tall buildings in San Francisco, and he was wondering whether they really knew what they were doing. And of course, he went and he talked to the developers and the engineers, and they told him, yeah, it's, it's well-established science. And then he, he talked to some other people like me, and I, I spent a lot of time with him trying to explain to him that there's a lot of stuff that we still don't do very well. That's a photograph of uh, San Francisco right after the 1906 earthquake. You can see it's kind of de totally demolished and burned to the ground. And now these are uh, the new buildings that are building, being built in that same area. So San Francisco's <clears throat> now put up these uh, tremendous number of tall buildings in the same area that was completely devastated in 1906. And the question is, have we got it all figured out and everything's fine? What's gonna happen after the next big uh, uh, San Andreas earthquake? And that's what we'll be talking about. So if you could uh, just turn that one off for the moment. <laughs> so a lot of this talk is about uh, something that has bothered me for a long time. I call it a mixed message. And, and you'll see uh, there's a common theme in this talk. It's about earthquake engineers as a group of people and earth scientists as a separate group of people. And we tend to give pretty different, different messages depending on which group we're in. So the mixed message, uh, it, it, this would showed up after the Northridge earthquake in 
1994. And if you remember that earthquake, um, it was pretty challenging to California. And uh, it actually turns out it was quite violent shaking in the San Fernando Valley. And after that violent shaking, earthquake engineers came on TV and they said, wow, it really shook hard there. It, I mean, it, it shook kind of harder than we expected. But, and we had some collapsed uh, freeways and some collapsed buildings, but overall, we did pretty well. We were, we were in pretty good shape. We're, we must be doing it mostly right. And, and then earthquake geophysicists came on and said, well, it looked like just a standard magnitude 6.7 earthquake. Wait until you see a 7.7. It's got 30 times as much energy. Well, so you, 30 times as much as what seemed to be very violent. It sounds like we don't have a chance. So, so how do we as Californians kind of deal with these two messages? What, what, what are we really trying to tell you? Well, again, there's two classes of people. Geophysicists, that's my background. And um, what do geophysicists want to know? They want to know what's going on in an earthquake, what causes them, how big could they be, when and where is the next earthquake going to be. And we just keep asking questions and que we love to ask questions. And we debate these questions endlessly. They're the fundamental questions. And we hope there's no real answer because then we won't have anything to do. I mean, <laughs> and not surprisingly, geophysicists like to hang out with other geophysicists so we can ask these questions. We go to our own meetings like the American Geophysical Union meeting and no earthquake engineers are to be found at the, <laughs> at the geophysical union meeting, except me. And then here's this other class of people, earthquake engineers. How many people in here are engineers, by the way? I, I must have some engineers. So I, don't. <laughs> All right. So let me just, I have great admiration for engineers. They, they, they really, if we didn't have engineers, we, the, the engineers design the important structures in our communities. If we didn't have engineers, this building wouldn't be here. You wouldn't want it to be designed by a geophysicist. It'd be a disaster. Um, and for an engineer, it's really important that they have confidence that they're designs are efficient and that they're safe. And I'd say most of the engineers I know really want to have consistency in the things they do. They don't want to change the way they do things every other year. They, they'd like to have the answer and not have it change on them. And so in that respect, if I ask an unanswerable question to my engineering colleague, he says, I, I got better things to do than to debate about unanswerable questions. And well, but they're like, they're kind of like uh, geophysicists. They like to be with other earthquake engineers. Those are the only people that really understand them. And um, so they go to a different meeting, the Structural Engineers Association of California or the 
uh, SC, the uh, Society of uh, Civil Engineering, for instance, American Civil Engineering. But remember, I'm, I'm both uh, engineering and geophysics, and this creates a little bit of a dilemma in my own life. So that's kind of the introduction. Now, the talk I'm giving can be a little hard to follow, I'm sorry. So I'm gonna give you the, the, the conclusions, the summary at the beginning here, so that maybe you'll be able to see where we're going. <clears throat> so I'm going to be talking about the shaking of the ground and I'll characterize it into high frequency shaking and low frequency shaking. The high frequency shaking, I'll measure it by the peak acceleration that the ground has, and we'll see some pictures of that in a second. <clears throat> it turns out that the high frequencies are uh, important for stiff buildings, like this building is a stiff building, and high frequencies are important for that. Um, but it, and here's the, uh, an important aspect of high frequencies. They do something we call saturate with magnitude, which means when, as you go up in the earthquake magnitude, if you're in close to an earthquake, once you get up to about magnitude six, that's about as big as they get. So the uh, peak accelerations in an eight are about the same as a six. And when they saturate, the statistics of how they saturate is typically described by uh, log normal statistics. And those statistics are quite straightforward. That's what uh, uh, accounting groups, uh, the, uh, the insurance groups use for actuarial statistics. You can think about life atta heart attacks for uh, life insurance or, or uh, murder rates or car accidents. We know how to do those statistics. And um, so, in fact, those high frequencies, you, all you really need to know to characterize the high frequencies, uh, if it's normal, you need to know a median and a standard deviation. If you have 10 numbers that are normally distributed, that's usually enough to give you most of what you need to know. Um, but the low frequencies are mainly characterized by the displacement of the ground, how far it moves during the earthquakes. And in this case, I'll talk about the maximum amount it moves, peak ground displacement. <clears throat> and that those low frequencies are the things that are important to tall buildings. Tall buildings don't carry a, care a whit about those high frequencies, but the low frequencies are important. And um, the low frequencies, when you look at them, they do not saturate with magnitude. They keep getting bigger, the bigger the magnitude. And the, the most troubling part is the statistics aren't described by this normal distribution anymore. They're described by power laws. And if people work on power laws, they know how difficult they are to work with. <clears throat> and in fact, there, you can't really do a meaningful loss estimate of something that is described by a power law. It's kind of like saying, tell me how many people are gonna die in a war next year. You're just not gonna be able to do it. <clears throat> and the bottom line is that in the US at the moment, current uh, design of tall buildings is a probabilistic affair that assumes uh, the 
final design motions end up being smaller than is widely accepted in the geophysical community. Most geophysicists don't really understand what the engineers are using to design the buildings. But if they did, they'd say, that's not enough. And I can see it because I'm both. But most of my, my other colleagues can't see this because they're, they go to the wrong meetings. <laughs> <clears throat> and here's an important thing that I want to say uh, at the end. Of, there's a special class of problem out there created for, by steel buildings that were made before 1994. All right, <clears throat> so that's the summary. Um, here's some uh, key starting points. I'm going to concentrate on the shaking that occurs very close to the fault that causes the earthquake. And a couple of reasons. One is because this is the uh, regions of most intense shaking. And it turns out it's sort of the simplest one to do the physics for it. We won't talk too much about the physics, but. Um, and I'll show you that uh, having the combination of large ground velocity, the speed at which the ground is moving during the shaking, and also large displacements is a good predictor of what kinds of motions would actually collapse tall buildings. And I'll tell you that uh, if you're in close to an, uh, an earthquake and you see ground displacements of more than a meter of the, total meter, uh, ground displacement of more than a meter, you probably don't want to be in a tall building. It's just, it's a pretty dangerous place to be. And, but, and it turns out we haven't seen that yet. It's, we've been really lucky. Um, uh, we haven't had the combination of a larger quake close to our tall buildings. And so it just hasn't come up yet. But, it's, but it will, I mean, it's just a matter of time. And, um, and one of the questions is, currently people are using statistics to design these tall buildings. And because these things are a Pareto distribution or this power law, I ask is statistical prediction of these long period ground motions even technically feasible? And I'd tell you that I, I really don't know the answer to that, but Maybe we'll figure out some way to handle it, but I suspect it's whatever we come up with will change the way we're doing things currently. Um, and in my mind, the real question is, 100 years from now, will people be making buildings the same way we currently are, or will we change the way we're approaching this problem? I, I suspect we will, but... Anyway, let's, let's uh, talk for a moment about uh, building code. So the current building code is, it's been around since the 1930s. And uh, the building code started out mainly as a set of rules. And the rules were developed by looking at what happened um, in past earthquakes. So uh, based on the kind of building that you're in, like this is a short building with lots of walls, or a tall building with lots of columns. Uh, those are diff different types of buildings. And then depending on, are you in California or are you in the Midwest, you may be in a different seismic zone. 
And the codes have been developed, these rules have been uh, developed by looking at what worked and didn't work in past earthquakes. So after every earthquake, people would go out and characterize the buildings that did poorly in the earthquake, and they'd look at what went wrong in past earthquakes. And then they said, just total common sense, isn't there something we could do to make it do better? Uh, more wall area, better connections, a variety of different techniques, and they'd put that into the building code and say, use these other, other standards and you'll get a better outcome. So we learn from past earthquakes. It's like, duh. <clears throat> so if you've got, if you've learned from lots of past earthquakes and you're an engineer, that's good. You, you don't have to complicate your life by talking to a geophysicist that just asks these crazy questions. You got a good building code, you don't need a, a geophysicist to talk about other things because you've already figured out what works and what doesn't. But the, the problem has come in our tall buildings. So for a long time, people uh, had a height limit on the um, what buildings could be built in California because they said, um, we really don't have enough experience to know how to deal with tall buildings. And um, in order to deal with that problem, people started to uh, do probabilistic earthquake engineering. And that's the way a lot of things are done these days. People that design for a lifetime of something, how, how long will your car go before it, it uh, has some sort of failure? And so people wanted these sets of probabilities. And a good engineer says, just tell me what the standards are that I have to design to, and I'll meet it. I'm, I'm a good engineer. I won't, I won't go beyond it. I won't waste your money, but I'll make it do what you want me to do. <clears throat> so about the year 2000, there's been a shift in engineering over something we call this performance-based earthquake engineering, which says that the building should be built according to a statistical model of what the ground will shake like. And... Um, so the current practice is uh, it's typical to build uh, for a, a mean time between collapses on the order of 2,500 years. Uh, that is, except in San Francisco where it's 1,500 years. And you all know why San Francisco's, San Franciscans uh, are, don't deserve it to live as long. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> my, my engineering colleagues uh, claim there's a boundary uh, somewhere in the middle of the state where the IQ jumps by 10 points. They, it, depending on who you talk to, it goes both ways. But <laughs> So one of the interesting questions is, why 2,500 years? Where did that come from? Well, it turns out people took uh, the codes that were being used prior to this thing, and the earliest probabilistic analyses indicated that if they met the previous codes and they were using the, the earliest uh, probabilistic analyses, they came up with a kind of a 
a, uh, a failure time of 2,500 years. So that's where that 2,500 years came from. And 1,500 years came up because San Francisco's got the San Andreas Fault running through it. It was harder to do that, so they chose a different number there. And, um, but if you think about it for a second, 2,500 years is a long time, even for us. I know we're gonna live another thousand years or so, all of us, but, <laughs> but uh, again, when, you, when a human hears this number, the problem's solved, right? I mean, <laughs> we're gonna run out of energy, we're gonna, we're gonna completely uh, sweat to death bef before any of this happens, right? So, and if you're, if you're actually, um, if you're a developer, and you want to convince somebody to spend a billion dollars on a building, and you're not quite sure what's going to happen, if you say 2,500 years, that's long enough that <laughs> I'll, I'll spend my money. All right? so everybody's happy with that 2,500-year number. And the question is, is that true? Is it really 2,500 years? Can we do that? Well. Now I'm gonna talk some more about the physics of, of buildings and there's kind of two, two directions you can go with a building. You can make a building uh, strong. Strong is good means you can put big forces on it and it won't break. So the stronger the better. And, but it turns out that uh, another thing that's out there is is it stiff or is it flexible? So uh, it, if I make a building strong, it turns out in the process of making it strong, I tend to put in lots of braces or walls. And when I'm done, I've got a building that's quite stiff, which means that it, it moves as a unit, which I have to, when, if I accelerate the base, I'm accelerating the entire mass of the building. And stiff buildings tend to be pretty heavy as well. So I end up with big forces in the building if I try to make it uh, strong, it ends, ends up being stiff. And um, so when, when I do that, I, I think to myself, well, did I make it strong enough? Because now it's stiff and heavy, so I have to make it stronger, which makes it stiffer. <laughs> which means I'm back to asking, did I make it strong enough? And uh, it's kind of a, a vicious circle that you go through. Uh, if you try to make it strong. And in fact, when people thought about tall buildings, they said, well, I, I better make it really strong because it's small at the base, a lot of mass going up in the, in the air. And that's why people put on, on uh, limits on how tall you could build a building. And then in the 50s, people discovered, well, maybe we're not quite thinking about this right. If I make my building flexible instead of making it stiff, I'm not accelerating the entire uh, building as a unit. I'm basically sending waves up and down the buildings. And in that case, the stresses drop in the building by making it flexible. Um, <clears throat> so when I make a building flexible, it does decrease the stresses, which is what people did. They made them, then we make them flexible. But it also decreases the strength of the building. It goes the other way. It's another vicious circle in here. But all of our uh, tall buildings in California are flexible. They're, they're a very different kind of thing than we see in this building. It turns out the Chileans have decided 
they want to go with stiff, strong buildings. So their buildings are very different than ours. As it turns out, we have, we have the same building code basically in Chile and, and the uh, Southern California, but it's used in different ways. If you go into the building code, if you decide this is gonna be a flexible building, the, the building code looks very different than if you decide I'm going to build a stiff building. It's one set of laws, but the outcome is used in different ways. So here's an example of um, a stiff set of buildings. This is uh, Japanese. Japanese love strong buildings. They, they have a lot of earthquakes. They've had a lot of disasters. And um, they're pretty insecure about all this. So they tend to build really conservatively built buildings. These are some buildings in the 1964 Niigata earthquake. These are concrete buildings with uh, solid concrete walls. We call them shear walls. And um, the shear walls are on two perpendicular walls tied together by floors. So uh, these walls could fail if you pushed them out of plane, but, but they're in plane, they're almost indestructible. And they're connected together. The net result is you might think that uh, this building here has failed, but actually what's happened is that the soils beneath that building liquefied and uh, the ground, the, it lost its foundation. So after the earthquake was over, the buildings were actually fine. I mean, <laughs> and people continued to live in these buildings. They just had to use the windows for doors and, and all. I'm, I'm told that, that, that this building was eventually jacked back upright, vertical, and it's still in use today. I mean, the buildings themselves were very strong. So this is, this is a strong, stiff, heavy shear wall building. And this are, these three buildings are from Mexico City. Uh, in the Michoacan earthquake. These are steel, three flexible steel buildings. They were started out supposedly identical to each other. This one uh, collapsed horizontally. And you can see that when it collapsed, it, it didn't collapse as a unit. It kind of folded over because it was flexible, but not so strong. It turns out this middle one here, when it was all over, if you uh, hung a rope from the top down to the bottom, it was offset by about a meter at the base, so it was permanently bent. And the right-hand one was, uh, didn't have any apparent damage at all. And this earthquake was uh, 200 miles away from these buildings, and the buildings are right next to each other. You'd, they were supposed to be identical, and this kind of shows how hard it is to really understand what happens to these buildings when they're shaken strongly. But anyway, this is an example of flexible kind of uh, construction. I'm gonna show you uh, some ground motions now from a very interesting earthquake in 2010, the Kukapa El Mayor earthquake just south of the border down here in um, not too far from Mexicali and the, here's the fault that this was on. It was a magnitude 7.2 earthquake, and the fault itself was through a very, um, 
very uninhabited part of uh, uh, of Southern California, or I'm sorry, Mexico, and but it was pretty close to Mexicali. And what, earlier in my life, I always thought, oh, this would be the worst disaster, kind of like Haiti, a big earthquake next to a city that uh, had, doesn't have the resources to build well on earthquakes. But I was re really shocked to see what went on here. Here's a recording of the ground shaking in Mexicali. This is what we call an accelerometer record. This is the acceleration with time. And here are these uh, short period high frequency spikes. So the biggest acceleration is there. And it's kind of a, a rapid back and forth kind of motion. And then you can see later in the record is an example of low frequency motions. If I turn this into displacement, the biggest displacements would be back in this later part of the record. And uh, let's see what that looks like. Whoops, Here, here's another point. Here's, here's Mexicali. The earthquake was here. It was a, a, a city of a million people. This was on, on Easter day in the afternoon. Turns out there were only two fatalities in this city. I mean, amazing. It shook hard, but only two fatalities. And it turns out that in, in Mexicali, uh, CMEX, the national cement company in Mexico, had distributed a large number of uh, flyers to tell people how to build their buildings. It, it taught them how to build a concrete uh, uh, block construction, basically uh, hollow concrete blocks, uh, uh, one story high, uh, small rooms, and uh, put reinforcing steel in the hollow parts of the, con uh, the blocks and then fill the blocks with, con with concrete. You end up with a reinforced concrete wall, sort of like that, um, that Mexican case. And, and in essence, they told everyone to build a 7-Eleven store. And, and you know, 7-Eleven stores, they're all over the place. They're really not very expensive but that's where you really want to be in an earthquake. I mean, I've, I've never seen a crack in a 7-Eleven store. And you'll have plenty to eat after, after it's over. Don't get shot. But. So that's what they built, and they did great. Here's a, an interesting video from a surveillance cam in Mexicali during that earthquake. So first we'll see the high frequency, and this is the, the camera's on a post that is kind of uh, resonating back and forth. So we'll see those high frequencies coming in in this. The, well, it's a, it's a steel post. I don't, in the background, you can see this uh, eight-story uh, sheer wall, probably wooden building. And you know, it would have been exciting to be here there at that time, but in a little bit, the low frequencies are gonna come in and you'll see everything changes completely. Now we're starting to get the low frequencies here and, and I, I don't know about being in that pool. Um, <laughs> but if you had a, a, a low frequency building, you could see that's what would be important to a low frequency building. There were no tall low frequency buildings in Mexicali. So, this is the only thing we've got to go on. Now, what you're seeing here in that pool is the ground motion at those low frequencies. 
at the top of a, of a tall, flexible building, those motions would be similar, but about 10 times bigger than what you're viewing here. And uh, maybe we could, I, yeah, there we go. And that's an interesting point. I mean, this is actually uh, a famous hotel in Singapore. And, um, uh, and the point I'm trying to make is this won uh, lots of architectural awards. I mean, I looked at it and I thought, oh my God. <laughs> it's called an infinity pool. I mean, if you had a big earthquake and you were in this pool, it would, it would definitely be infinity. <laughs> or here's, here's another architectural gym. This, I, maybe you've seen this one, it's up in uh, Seattle. And it's uh, the Rainier Tower run, won all kinds of awards. Ar architects get awards for making buildings that look like they couldn't possibly go through an earthquake. And, <laughs> and, and this, this building was designed um, in the 1970s before anybody had uh, really recognized that we have magnitude nine earthquakes in this part of the, of the world. But the buildings, you know, it's, it's still there. You can rent, rent uh, space in it and nobody's really talking about, is this building really uh, designed for a large earthquake? Well, all right. Now let's talk more about the physics of these tall buildings. So one very common uh, design feature of tall buildings is, uh, is uh, or a very common uh, type of building is what's called a moment-resisting frame building. And what it is is it's a, a column, a couple of columns or many columns connected by uh, beams. Often these columns are steel. They can be concrete. And these days, they can even be wood. That's pretty unusual. And the key thing is that when you deflect this frame horizontally, the columns deflect over, and the beams are intended to go into this S-shaped uh, curved uh, shape. And you can see that as long as the beam and column are perpendicular to each other at this point, it has to flex to uh, keep everything connected together. If you connected the beams and the columns with door hinges, it would just flop over, right? So the, the key aspect of these buildings are these connections which causes the beams to flex. And the flexing of the beam is the spring that brings the building back to vertical. So um, it's, a, it's called a moment-resisting frame, and moment is for the twisting moment that happens at the ends of the, of the beams. And so the big forces go between the columns and the beams in order to make those twisting motions of the beams. Um, and you'd like to avoid having what's called a plastic hinge in the columns. Plastic hinges. You took a coat hanger and you, you bend it, eventually it gets a kink in it. It's a plastic hinge. You don't want those in columns because columns carry the weight of the building. Once you kink the, the columns, 
gravity wants to bring your building down. So here's a picture of a plastic hinge. And this is how uh, engineers want a, a steel moment frame building to, to behave. If you push it hard enough, eventually you'd like to see the steel begin to bend. And that's what we call plastic behavior. Oops. And you can see these are bends in the steel. It's actually yielding. And, and as long as the beams are yielding and the columns aren't, you're probably okay because the column carries the weight of the building. So if you have some damage in your building, you'd like it to be in the beams like this. And so people assumed when they built tall buildings, uh, these uh, moment-resisting frames, that if it, the shaking got really strong, that this is what they'd see in the buildings. But in fact, after the Northridge earthquake, people went out and inspected uh, buildings to look for these bent uh, beams, and they didn't find any bent steel anywhere, but they were shocked to discover that a number of the connections uh, between the beams and columns had failed. Now, this was a special connection that was designed after Northridge, that, so it worked the way it was supposed to. And uh, let's see the next. So here's uh, just an example of how people connected these things. They would weld the beams to the flange of the column, and those welds were assumed to be strong enough to put the large enough forces into the beam to make it bend. And that was based on some tests of one-third scale uh, pieces of steel, one-third the scale that you would see in a real building. And why did people do one-third? Because if you look at the real beams and columns in a real building, they're big, and to actually bend them takes an enormous machine, means expensive machine. And so they did the tests at one-third scale and said, well, everything worked as we expect at one-third scale. It'll work at full scale. And uh, nobody really did the test on the full scale. Uh, of course, the earthquake did the test. And I, if we could run this one, these are some videos that were uh, done uh, by one of my colleagues down at UC San Diego. And uh, you're going to see a test of a vertical column and a horizontal beam.
pretty exciting if you're into it. So here, here it is, sort of close up. Here's the connection, it's top and bottom. And that connection is there it breaks. So that's uh, a flaw that we didn't know about prior to North But it turns out that all buildings built prior to Northridge, you can assume that they'll never bend the steel, that the welds will break before uh, they bend the steel. So that turns out to be quite important. So my colleague at Caltech, John Hall, he's a professor uh, of structural engineering and a very good one, uh, studied this problem by making finite element models of a variety of different kinds of buildings uh, we'll especially be looking at some 20-story buildings that were designed to meet the, the building code of the 1990s. And in fact, he, built, he designed some buildings for uh, 1994 uh, Unified Building Code, that's uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And then he built, designed some buildings that met the Japanese code, um, very different kind of uh, similar but written in a very different way, the Japanese code of 1992. And then he designed these buildings so they would have either perfect welds as was intended, or he would put in welds that could fracture as was seen uh, in the earth, in the Northridge earthquake. And um, so here's kind of showing you sort of how these different buildings behave. This is what we call a pushover analysis. So take the building, and begin to accelerate it horizontally and just steadily accelerate it. It's not very realistic when you think about it because it means it would move huge distances, but it gives you an idea of what the, the strength of the buildings are. These um, blue and green buildings are US code buildings and the red and purple are Japanese code buildings. The, Ones on the bottom here are 20-story buildings, and the ones above are six-story buildings. Okay, so first thing you can see is as you increase the, the force, uh, the, this is the force on the vertical axis, the, the roof begins to deflect. And when it's going up on this straight line, that's linear elastic, which means you're increasing, you're, you're bending things linearly. If you took the force back off, the building would just go back where it started. But once it gets up to a certain uh, force, it starts to yield, it starts to bend. So if they have perfect welds, you see these curves and that's the steel is starting to bend. And plastic uh, behavior just tells you there's an upper limit of how far they can go. And if they actually have the broken welds, you see these jagged curves below. It's a dynamic analysis. The reason they're jagged is because every time the weld breaks, it sends a shutter through, this, through the simulation. So those are the shutters going through the simulation. So in general, you can see the six-story buildings have a much higher strength compared to their, their weight. So this force is given as a percentage of the weight of the building. And like the US code 20-story building, the weakest of these is the one with uh, brittle welds. And you can see the maximum force it can take is about 6% of its weight, which means you took that building and put it on a six, 
uh, degree slope, that would be enough to have it fall over. There's no leaning tower of Pisa in here. I mean, so people say, well, these buildings, these steel buildings are incredibly strong. Well, sure, they're strong. They get a lot of mass, but compared to their weight, no, they're, they're not very strong. They're intended to be ductile and flexible. All right, so that's what those, and, and notice that for any of these buildings, by the time you get the, the roof offset from the base by two meters, six feet, that's about as far as you can go. After that, these curves drop down, and that means the building's collapsing. And, and why does the building collapse? It's the, it, the vertical weight of the building is now trying to bend the columns, and they just can't take the, the bending moments from the weight of the building. So, so here's what that building looks like to a dynamic motion, the building is, uh, starts vertical and then the ground starts to move to the left by about two meters. And you can see the ground is starting to move to the left. The, build, the top of the building is lagging behind because it's flexible. And these little carrots at the bottom are welds breaking in the simulation. Uh, several seconds into it, the ground uh, actually stops moving to the left and starts to move back where it started, and the top has overrun the base now. And uh, about uh, four seconds into this thing, the base is almost where it started, and the top is just continuing to run to the left. And once it gets far enough out of vertical, gravity does the rest of the job. It's going to come down. So. So this is the E-Defense table in Japan. It's the world's largest shape table. And you can see here's a, here's a steel building. This thing here, there's this much larger steel structure in the background. And it's there to catch this building when it collapses. This is a two-thirds scale model of a steel building. You can see how flexible it is. You can see it's not moving as anything. Unit. And once it gets far enough out of vertical, gravity takes it down. And basically, this there. So now this frame has caught it. It's just too dangerous and expensive to allow the building to actually collapse in the laboratory. But it's basically collapsed again. That's what that looks like when it happens. You wouldn't want to be in a robot with it if that happens. All right, so. It's an experiment. It's a very expensive experiment. I mean, we cannot afford to do that kind of experiment in the United States. We're too busy building weapons. All right. Uh, uh, let's see, all right. Uh, why, why am I not going on? Could you try and advance that? There we go. All right. So we took that 20-story building and we put it through a simulation of what the ground would have moved like in the 1906 earthquake. This is based on um, the measurements of how far the San Andreas Fault moved in 1906. We don't actually have all the ground motion records or any of them, but this is our best guess of what happened in 1906. 
And we put that on a finite element grid of the Earth, and we put those 20-story buildings at every point in the finite element grid. And then if the building simulated collapse, it's, it's turned red in here. So anything that's red is a collapse of, of that building. And anything that's uh, green or yellow is damaged beyond repair. It's bent beyond repair. And there's four different cases in here. One is on the left are Japanese building code. On the right are US building code. And uh, on the top are the brittle weld buildings. And on the bottom are the buildings with perfect welds. And you can see that um, sort of the least red is the Japanese uh, with perfect welds. And the US one with brittle welds has got lots and lots of red in there. And that's, that's our best guess of what would happen in a 1906 earthquake. And so these kinds of earthquakes probably repeat on average sort of like 500 years. We don't know very how much regular it is, but it's certainly not 2,500 years or even 1,500 years. And um, it's, it's a sign that there's problems out there. Um, and like I say, the brittle well buildings, it turns out, are about five times more likely to collapse than the buildings with the perfect welds. We ran these simulations for uh, a number of different kinds of earthquake scenarios. Here's one uh, particularly nasty one for Los Angeles. This is a simulated magnitude 7.3 on what we call the Plenty Hills Blind Thrust Fault System. It's got a, a lot of the LA's oil wealth is because of this structure. And um, I don't know how often these, these faults move, maybe every thousand years or so, but all these areas that are pink would be areas where a good weld US code building would, would collapse. And we're, I guess we're down about here, I guess. I, this, this would be a, a huge disaster for LA if this thing happened. So in fact, we went through lots and lots of um, simulations of earthquakes and buildings, and we did uh, 64,000 different simulated uh, runs of what would happen to buildings. And then when we were done, we asked of those records that we ran, when did the buildings collapse and when were they okay? And if we plotted for each of the records, the peak displacement of the record versus the, and also the peak velocity on this axis, and put those two numbers on this plot, then the records that collapsed the buildings were the red ones here, and the gray ones, which was the majority of these, things were okay. And basically, you can see up in the upper right is where the collapses are, and it says if the velocities uh, got more than about 60 centimeters a second in this, uh, simulation and the displacements got more than about 60 centimeters, there was real trouble here. Okay, and if we did this for the Japanese, and we broke it in Japanese code, US code, brittle welds, here's what it looks, those dividing lines kind of look like. Things in the upper right tend to collapse, in the lower left, they're okay. And it basically says the worst of these is the US code 
uh, pre-Northridge. And it about six, 60 centimeters per second of velocity and 60 centimeters of displacement is pretty dangerous to that building. Japanese building's quite a bit better, but it's still susceptible if the displacements get up near a meter and the velocity is more than uh, 120 centimeters a second. So I, I think this is a pretty important plot. It gives you some idea of what we think the capacity of these buildings are. We also ran some even taller buildings, like 60-story buildings. They're a little more complicated, partly because 60-story buildings have to be designed especially so that they don't move too much in the wind. And when you get done with that, you have to make them stiff enough so that they don't move around a lot in the wind. Remember what I said, you make it stiffer, you make it stronger, so. But it turns out if we took, uh, say, a typical 60-story building and ran it through the ground motions that we recorded in the Denali earthquake in Alaska, it's enough to cause collapse of some of these buildings. All right, so that's buildings. Now, oh boy, I'm almost out of time. I want to talk a little bit about the earthquakes themselves, so how the ground motions vary with uh, magnitude and distance. Remember, acceleration is a measure of the high frequencies, and displacement is a measure of the low frequency ground motion. And we also look at velocity, it's kind of in between those two. And um, so if you took every record that we had available to us as of 10 years ago, every strong shaking record, and for each record, you these are real records, you plotted the peak acceleration in the record and the peak displacement. So peak acceleration on the vertical axis, peak displacement on the horizontal axis is a log scale now. You'll see there's this cloud of points and they sort of get bigger together. Bigger accelerations tend to go with bigger displacements, but there's huge scatter in there, factor 10. And then the points with the heavy circles, those are all within 10 kilometers of the rupture surface. So the, these are all the close-in records, so they're the big ones. And you'll see that when it gets big, the peak accelerations don't go bigger than a certain amount. It flattens out. And the displacements start to get, uh, they can go anywhere. And there's absolutely no correlation between displacement and acceleration in close for these bigger earthquakes. One doesn't tell you anything about the other. Uh, um, so if you took all those peak accelerations and from the close-in records, just those heavy plots, and you put it on a histogram, the number of data points versus the log of the size of the record, you'll see uh, this, this kind of shape here. Everybody knows that's, was that, that's a, that's a bell, <laughs> believe it or not. That's a bell-shaped curve. That's a, that's a normal distribution. And, um, and since this is a log scale on the bottom, that's a log normal distribution. All right, and we know how to deal with log normal distributions. They've been around for a long time. That's the accelerations are long log normal distributions. This uh, light line is what the distribution looked like in uh, 1998, before we had the 1999 Chi Chi earthquake in, in Taiwan, which 
brought in a huge number of near source records. So when you put in the Chi Chi records, it's this black line. And you can see there are more records, but the shape of the curve hasn't changed one bit. That's because it was a, a log normal distribution, still is a log normal distribution. The median of the log normal distribution turns out to be a, that's a half a G when you unlog it. And uh, the, the width is about a factor of two. We know how to do this statistics. It's pretty simple. We don't know why it does that, by the way, but we know it looks like that. Uh, so those are normal uh, statistics. And you know, normal statistics are used all the time in actuarial science. And you can get uh, the mean and standard deviation only from a few dozen observations. You don't need a huge amount of data to do that. And it's the same problem as auto insurance or heart attacks. And, and the reason these things work that way is because heart attacks are not contagious, right? I mean, if, if I had a heart attack, doesn't mean you're gonna have a heart attack at the same year, I mean. Um, and so these kinds of problems, we know how to deal with them. The, the irony is that even though we can do the statistics on it, they only really apply to short periods, which means short, stiff buildings. But nobody uses this analysis for short, stiff buildings. They go back to the old tried and true standard building code that said that worked and that didn't. And actually, that's fine. I mean, But if we now go to uh, peak displacement of the ground, that's this axis and versus number, you'll see this distribution. And there's three of them in here. The light one was pre-Chi-Chi. The heavy one was after Chi-Chi. And then we did uh, what it would look like if we put in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Then it looked like this, this dotted line. And the point is, that that distribution first, it's, it's not a normal distribution. And uh, notice that the median is changing just by one earthquake changed the median. And if we had one out at the uh, San Francisco earthquake, it would change it again. So people who've looked at earthquakes and say, I know what an earthquake looks like. They've not looked at these other ones yet and they may change their mind when we get a big earthquake. And if you look at this, it, I can make the case to you, I don't have time to do it, that this is actually a log uniform distribution, which is a kind of, of heavy tail power law distribution, one over X. You know this distribution? It's, it's, it's kind of a nightmare distribution. But, um, and they're not log normal, well, but the important part is the, the small earthquakes are going to bring in a few records from each one. They're, they just don't, there's not that much near source area. The big earthquakes have a huge near source area. So the smaller ones in this distribution kind of trickle in with time over the years. But the big ones bring in a lot of records all at once. And so if you think you know what the distribution looks like, a big earthquake could come in and completely change things. And big earthquakes are kind of sneaky. They often come in pairs. So you might get two of them. And um, it's just a nightmare to try to do the statistics on it. And there, that's a kind of power law distribution. 
sometimes called a Pareto distribution. So if we wanted to know the, the wealth in uh, California, we could go into the college here and do a, uh, we could do a, ask everybody how much money they made last year, all the students, and we'd get a mean and a standard deviation multiplied by the, the total number of people in California, and we'd know the total money in, in California, right? Probably not. Not unless Larry Ellison's going to college. Or, <laughs> I mean, Pareto distributions are the things where uh, the things that are most rare have most of the action in the distribution. And the trouble is, if you want to know the total action in a Pareto distribution, you've got to understand those most rare things. And... Um, so what kind of things are a Pareto distribution? How many people are gonna die next year in a war? Maybe none of us, maybe all of us, just impossible to say. Same thing with the pandemic, bird flu. You, the insurance companies won't even insure you for these kinds of things because they have no way to estimate those things. Here's the one I like, I'm getting close to retirement. It looks like there might be a few retired people out here. And what did they tell you about your stock market investments? You, you know what it's going to look like in five years, right? All right. So here's, um, here's kind of the current worst record we've got. This was from the Chi-Chi earthquake. At the top is acceleration of the ground. Uh, it wasn't all that big, about 37% Chi sort of below the average for in close to big earthquakes. The peak velocity of the ground in this case, when you integrate that record is three meters per second. That's enormous. Remember I told you things bigger than a meter per second are, are a problem. And the peak displacement's nine meters. This record will destroy any flexible tall building on the planet. I mean, this is a real nasty record but it's not used ever for design. People never saw it. <laughs> I mean, so here's an, here's an interesting one. Uh, if you could run this one, this is a surveillance camera in downtown, in the middle of Kathmandu during the Nepal earthquake. And um, so this is a magnitude 8.1 earthquake uh, directly beneath the city. And people are just kind of wandering around. Now they're just beginning to feel the P wave from the earthquake and running outside. And in comes the long periods, like in the pool. Can you see any long periods there? <laughs> Amazing. There were no tall, flexible buildings in Kathmandu, which is a good thing. Um, all right, let's, so here, here's a record that was actually from uh, very close to that. Here's the acceleration at the top. The accelerations were shockingly small, only 16% G, not very big accelerations. The velocities were 107 centimeters per second, which is really very large, and the displacements about 140 centimeters, 1.4 meters. And um, if we take, and we put this in terms of a spectrum, here's the spectrum of that record, this black line. And this curve here is the design spectrum that is used in California for the biggest uh, shaking in places like Los Angeles and, 
in San Francisco. And you can see that record's way bigger than uh, is used as a biggest record. So we're now starting to see some of these biggest records showing up with time. Um, they weren't in the early parts of things. I'm almost done. This, this next part's a short diversion. I, I just got to show it to you. This is, um, this is San Francisco. We're back to the original question from uh, the New York Times article. And um, the, they're currently putting up the Salesforce Tower. It's the largest building in the Western US and uh, tallest building in the Western US. It's right next to the Transbay uh, Transportation Center. And um, a century ago, or a little more than a century ago, this was all kind of swampland. And then after the 1906 earthquake, uh, they filled in these swamps with the debris from the uh, 1906 uh, aftermath, uh, just, just piled it in there, unengineered stuff. So all this is what we call unengineered fill. It's liquefiable and bad things will happen in that material. And the, in order to deal with that, here's a model of the Salesforce Tower. They built um, large uh, piers that uh, are beneath the Salesforce Tower. They go through these shallow um, uh, marine sediments that will liquefy. And they went down about 300 feet to put the piers into uh, bedrock, into the Franciscan bedrock, to carry the weight of this building. And um, that sounds pretty good, but I'm gonna show you uh, a video now from an earthquake we just had in Indonesia, the Palu earthquake. And we've seen very little about this earthquake. It's a, a strike slip earthquake, seven and a half. It's running right through here. Um, and let me go here. So here's uh, the, this uh, valley is the rift valley of the strike slip fault. Palu's at the end of the bay up here. It's kind of um, uh, delta sediments in Palu, and delta sediments all through here up for uh, rivers coming down here. And um, when the earthquake was done, an aerial view of the ground looked like this. What is that? I mean, that's very strange looking terrain. Looks like another planet. So if you could run the, the top video, this is the scariest video I've ever seen in my life. I hope it works. You can see these buildings are just flowing to the left. In fact, uh, some of the buildings ended up half a mile from where they started. And basically, this, this material's liquefied, it turned into a slurry of mud. And even though it looks flat, what little slope there was was enough to have that slurry of mud flowing downhill. And um, so this is what San Francisco looks like currently. And all that liquefiable area is this. And when, if, when we get that slurry of mud, if it starts to move horizontally, I don't think anyone has any real idea what's going to happen to those 
those uh, um, pilings that are down there, whether, whether or not they will be sheared off. I, I wouldn't want to be there when it happens. Um, we've got similar issues in places like Vancouver, British Columbia, where we think there'll be magnitude nine. So British Columbia, uh, Vancouver is built on a big delta for the Fraser River. And also, uh, you probably recognize this, it's a space needle. Lots of liquefiable materials along the waterfront in uh, Seattle as well. So, uh, let's just, so I'm about to the end here. So um, here's the issue I'm kind of dealing with. My earthquake engineering colleagues tell me, look, you can ask the craziest questions, but, but we're in the business of building things. That's what we do. And, and if we're going we're gonna to build something, you've got to tell us what to build for, right? So they say, um, I need to have some answers. So the architect goes out, chooses something that's really bold and will get him an award. And, um, and then he takes that to, uh, he takes it to the structural engineer. And the structural engineer has to make it work. You know, he says, uh, how strong should I make all the elements in this building so that it will meet the standard, which is this probabilistic standard that is out there. And so he, he finds the size of the elements. And that's what we currently call performance-based engineering. So it's now designed for the 2,500-year motion. And you can take it to the developer and says, yeah, my money's good for that, 2,500 years, no problem. And, um, but I hope I've convinced you there's a lot of unknowns in here. And um, so another way to go about this problem, I'm on the Caltech campus, and our campus is built completely different from San Francisco. And George Hausner had a lot to do with the way our campus is built. And George always told me, I kind of knew what I didn't know. And um, what, do you, what does that mean? Um, so, but just determine the functional requirement for a, a, a building, like this building, and consider I could build it different ways and different kinds of architects, architectures determine what they would all cost and um, go through and assess the strengths and weaknesses of the different designs and make sure that the engineers, earth scientists, and architects are actually talking to each other about which might be the best building and choose the design that seems to make the most sense to all the parties involved. And, um, so to me, our real job is to find mistakes we might be making and try to avoid them. Uh, I, I like to say better buildings are always better. So my specific recommendations are, first one is this pre-1994 uh, brittle welds and buildings. This is a big problem. You might, if you're in a steel building, there's a good chance it was built before 94. If it was, it's got brittle welds and but you probably didn't know that until I told you. And, and uh, this really needs to be taken care of. It's a hard problem to deal with. Right now, I think it's really important for architects to know something about this problem. They need to understand that 
when they design something, it, it, it constrains the way a structural engineer has to react to it. And telling the public that we're designing for 2,500-year ground motions sort of gives the message that we've got this problem solved. And um, I don't think that this 2,500-year claim is actually scientifically based. And to me, the real answer is, as usual, we just don't know the answer. Well, at, the, at my heart, I'm still a geophysicist. So thank you so much. Thank you.